today's topic, last week we did, um, Roy preached on self-control, learning self-control. And as if that wasn't hard enough for us to preach, <laughs> I decided to preach on taming your temper. You know, when, we, when Roy and I choose these sermon topics in the beginning of the year, we try to choose topics that hopefully are relevant to all of us. Something you know, that we all struggle with, things that we all want to know. Well, what does God say about this and how can we uh, learn how to live a better, fuller, um, more abundant life with him? And so when we chose these topics, it's because we struggle with self-control and we struggle with taming our temper. And so I just want you to remember that um, I'm sharing this from my own experience, things that I'm still learning um, and that this isn't just theory, but these are things that um, affect us every day. And it's funny because most of my life, I, I thought of myself as a very calm and collected person, um, and I thought I was pretty patient <laughs> until I had children and it all went out the door. Um, but I wonder what makes you angry? What makes you angry? And maybe you're one of those really calm and collected people, or maybe you don't have children yet, and so maybe nothing makes you angry. Um, but for most of us, we, we feel angry at some point, whether it's mild irritation or frustration to all the way to extreme rage, right? Which I've reached many times. You know, anger isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, anger is sometimes a very appropriate response, especially to things like injustice. If someone hurts you, it's, it's appropriate to actually want to defend yourself. But anger is a very powerful emotion, and when it is misdirected or chronic, it leads to poor choices and damaged relationships. Sometimes we repress our anger, which actually leads to depression and anxiety, or we let it explode, and it can become a habit in rage, and it can even lead to violence. Physically, chronic anger really hurts us. I've done some research, um, and what happens is that when you feel that anger, your body goes into fight or flight mode. And so the adrenal glands flood the body with stress hormones. Okay? It's actually one of the most stressful kind of emotions. And so what happens is that once the stress, stress hormones flood the body, it affects the brain. Um, it affects many things, but one of the first things it affects is the brain. It affects the brain's ability to make good decisions in that you know, frontal cortex. And it also affects your ability to remember. It, 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 it attacks that part of your brain that, that makes memories and that has short-term memory. It literally kills your brain cells. Okay, stress literally kills your brain cells. In addition to that, the stress hormones also flood your uh, metabolic processes. Um, so things like it increases high blood pressure, it increases heart rate, it gives you headaches, you get digestion problems, insomnia, increased anxiety, depression, skin problems, as well as lowered immune system. But in addition to the physical, you know, harmful effects of stress, spiritually anger also really hurts us. There's a Bible text that says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud. Oh, thank you. Proud in spirit. Thanks, Marvin. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. You know, anger can really lodge in your heart in the form of bitterness, in the form of guilt and shame. And it really blocks us being able to forgive, to love, to feel compassion and empathy and joy and peace. 
and we put up a wall against God. When anger takes root in our hearts, it produces fruit that causes damage and regret. And so it says in James, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we see this time and time again in the Bible. The very first person who got angry, as recorded in Scripture, was a man named Cain. Cain was one of the sons of Adam and Eve, and he had a brother named Abel. And the Bible says that Cain and Abel grew up, and Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. He was a farmer. And when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Why didn't God accept Cain and his gift? Maybe Cain had reason to be angry. And there's a lot of things that I could go into, but let me just read you a, a passage from a, um, one of my favorite commentators. He says, Cain was not rejected because of his offering, but his offering was rejected because of Cain. His heart wasn't right with God. It was by faith that Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. This is found in Hebrews 11.4, which means that he had faith in God and was right with God. Abel brought the best that he had and truly sought to please God, but Cain did not have that attitude of faith. In other words, Cain brought his offering to say, look what I've achieved, instead of thinking of what actually God wanted and requested in the offering. His heart was not right with God because he was bringing the offering not in a spirit of worship, but in a spirit of pride. And God tries to reason with him by saying, hey, you will be accepted. He's not saying, I've rejected you forever. He's saying, hey, you need to make things right. Your heart is not right. But if you do it what is right, then you will be accepted. And God also warns him, hey, sin is crouching at your door. You need to master it. And we find out that what, later what this sin is that uh, is really at the heart of the problem. But Cain doesn't listen. He doesn't master his anger. And in fact, he directs it towards his brother Abel. And he later premeditates and murders him. The very first murder in history. And while we might look at this story and say, well, I, I've never murdered anybody. I don't have a problem. <laughs> Jesus comes along thousands of years later. And he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Psychologists call anger the secondary emotion. Meaning that one of the primary emotions like fear or sadness are actually what is underneath the anger. And anger is a way that we mask our sadness and our fear. And so we exhibit and we express anger, but really the root of the issue is the sadness or the fear. 
We feel like this, psychologists say, because sadness and fear make us feel very vulnerable, right? And we don't like feeling vulnerable. We don't like feeling out of control. So then we go to anger, which gives us this surge of power, and we have this false sense of security, false sense of control. And I feel like Jesus, you know, in this passage, speaking to all of us, but it really is a great commentary on what happened between Cain and Abel. You see, Cain's problem was not so much the, the offering and the worship. The real problem that was at the root of his anger was his jealousy against Abel, right? Which you can see because he later goes on to, to murder Abel. You know, if, if, he hadn't, if he didn't have any negative feelings towards Abel, he was just mad at God. But the fact that he afterwards goes and kills Abel shows that the root of his issue was this jealousy and this pride and all these other emotions and issues that he had in his heart, which was why God was telling him, hey, you need to make that right first. And Jesus is asking us to do the same. Jesus says to us, hey, yes, you might not murder, but in your heart is there anger and judgment and pride and all these things that begin in the heart but then exhibit its, itself as anger and, and even violence ultimately. Last year um, I had a breakdown. Um, so last year, let's see, Joshua was one-ish, and almost one, and uh, Micah was four, like three, three to four. Um, and it was a very difficult time. Joshua has been a terrible sleeper ever since he was born. Um, and so for several, like for all, like a whole year, I was getting, you know, at best six hours, sometimes two hours of sleep a night. And it was also a challenging time because boundaries were being pushed during the day. Um, I was just exhausted. And of course, it all came to a terrible, the worst possible place once uh, Roy went to New Zealand and I was... Um, with the kids for four weeks and my dad was here helping but um i really hit rock bottom i was basically flying into a rage against micah every day multiple times a day and i realized i would hate the person at the end of the day then of course i, I was so upset um, and sad at the person i had become and the way that i had treated micah and so then you know i would i would i would you know feel guilty and ashamed and and terrible about myself and Anyways, I finally decided, okay, this needs to change. And so I finally decided to use the counseling vouchers that the conference sent us every year. Usually, you know, they just sat around in the recycling bin. But I decided, you know what? I don't want to continue like this. Um, I want to change. And so I just Googled the nearest Christian counselor in the area, booked in a session. And so when I got there, I told her, I really want to, um, you know, this is what's happening and I want to manage my anger and I want to, um, yeah, have, have a better response to uh, what's happening during the day and she told me first of all you need to sleep more <laughs> and so she was uh, recommending that you know a few ways I could sleep better and then she said secondly what I said earlier she said anger is a secondary emotion she said there's something else going on that is b b below the surface um, and so she suggested two common factors that related to my particular situation with parenting she said and this is um across the board for everyone she was saying first you have to examine what is your relationship with your mother what is your relationship with your parents because when you parent your own kids um you don't realize it but all the way that you grew up in your childhood and the parenting you learn from your parents um impact how you parent even if you don't realize that and secondly she said what are your beliefs about parenting 
What are your beliefs about parenting? So we spent the next several weeks looking at those things. And I hadn't really sat down to, to actually think out loud and say and reflect on, oh, actually, this is what I think should happen. This is how I think children should behave. This is how I think mothers should be. And then she would say, but is that true? And I'd be like, hmm, actually, no. You know. Um, so it was really helpful to realize that um, there was something else going on um, and that I needed to change the way that I think. I also enrolled in an online 28-day course called Taming Your Temper, run by a mom who had actually gone through something very similar um, and had decided to start this program. And both of these counseling and modules uh, share that anger is something we feel because there is a conflict between, uh, there we go, there is a conflict between belief and reality. There's a conflict between belief in reality. In other words, belief is our opinions, our judgments, our conversation, our thoughts about what's happening, and reality is what is actually happening. And so the same situ situation or the same set of realities can make one person angry, but not another because their beliefs are different. So for example, when a toddler throws a tantrum, parent A may perceive the tantrum as normal learning behavior whose brain is developing and so the parent will remain calm, talk to their child about what's going on, help the child to express their frustration. Whereas parent B is feeling embarrassed because the thought process is the child shouldn't be behaving this way. I have had enough of this behavior and she feels like a bad mom because now she's yelling and, and screaming at the child, right? So anger is what we feel when there's a conflict between belief and reality. So if we want to change how we feel and respond, we have to change how we think about a challenging situation. We have to ask ourselves, what are my judgments and beliefs about what should happen? What is the reality stripped of my judgment and beliefs? Where do my judgments and beliefs come from? Are they correct? And what are the facts? You know, I realized that a lot of my anger came because I had these wrong beliefs about what my children should be like. So for example, you know, I would ask my God to be quiet and play quietly, right? And if he didn't play quietly, I would get upset. But then if I step back and just look at the reality, right? He's three and a half years old. He wants to run around and play, but I'm asking him to do something that almost is impossible, right? For his brain, for his physical activity, for his level. And especially if I think about the fact that, yes, I'm tired, but his room is right next door to Joshua's. So he can also hear all the crying and screaming Joshua does during the night. So he's not getting good sleep, which means he's also moody and tired and irritable. And so once I stepped back and kind of stripped my own opinions of what I think should happen and looked inside at the reality and the facts of the situation, I was able to, to admit that um, there was a different way to look at the situation. And I realized also a lot of my beliefs about what should happen was based on what my mother uh, says and believes about parenting. And I'm going to be preaching more about this next week on Mother's Day. Um, so I'll save mo a lot of that for then. But I realized, for example, my mom, you shared myself and my uh, sister. And according to her, we never cried. We always obeyed. We, you know, we would go to prayer meetings and be on our knees for two hours sitting quietly in folded hands, you know? And so I don't know what she did, but I, I, I kind of 
expected my children to at least be half as you know half as quiet or half as obedient or half as patient. And I've got two little boys. Um, I live in a different time and age, and so I, I've had to realize that her view of parenting is going to be different from mine because her experience is different from mine, and um, it's something that I've really had to unlearn in my own head. And um, you know, of course, she's my mother, and so she wants the best for me and and her grandchildren. And so for her, she wishes I fed the children organic, healthy, you know. Homemade meals three times a day, but the truth is, you know, if I can, you know, make something, it's it's a success, you know, <laughs> or if they've eaten something in their mouth, then then it's a good day. And so it's we just have to adjust sometimes our expectations and um, our understanding and our beliefs, and and really analyze why do we feel the way that we feel, why do we think the way that we think, and what is actually the truth, what are actually the facts, and sometimes it's really frustrating because. Um, once I realized this, now I knew. Oh, okay, I I don't have to be angry about this. But the reality is that once you get into the habit of becoming angry, your brain automatically goes there because our brains um, are trying to make our lives easier. In the sense that once you do something, the second time you do it, the brain thinks, "Oh, this is a pattern," and it decides to make a shortcut to to there. And so, the more times you repeat something, the faster your brain is able to do it. And so, that's what happens with the habit. But that means habits are hard to break because the brain goes there so quickly. You don't have that much time to stop yourself. And it it really is. Um, it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of um, mindfulness to be able to stop before it gets to that automatic response of anger. But it is possible to change. First, we identify the root of our anger by asking ourselves what makes us angry, and what beliefs and judgments we have about that situation. Then we ask, what is the reality stripped from the beliefs? What are the facts? Right? And then there's a third section. You know, there was another man in the Bible who was angry. His name was Captain Naaman, and he was a powerful man, a commander of the Syrian army. He had wealth, he had honor, he had riches, but he was sick. He had leprosy. And a young Jewish slave girl in his household tells him that there's a prophet in Israel who can heal him, and so he travels to Elisha's house. So we pick up the story, Second Kings chapter five. It says, "So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message: Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored, and you will be healed of your leprosy." But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Parfar better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. So let's see if you've been listening. Okay. So anger is the primary? No, second. Uh, what was I saying? Anger is a secondary emotion. Remember that? So the primary emotion is often fear or sadness or something else. So look at this passage and tell me, what do you think is the root of his anger? What is the primary emotion that is behind the anger and the rage? Any thoughts? 
pride. Notice his judgment. Okay, so now let's look at the judgment. Notice how、um, he says, "I thought he would surely come out to meet me." Okay, so that is his expectation. Those are his beliefs. Those are his judgments. Because he's used to red carpet treatment, he's an important man. So he thought surely he would come out and meet me. So his pride is wounded. What are some other emotions? The primary emotions that's fueling his anger. Yes, yes,、um, and and also I don't know if you noticed.、Um, he says, "Aren't the rivers of Damascus, you know, etc., better than any Israel, river of Israel?" So there's there's this national prejudice, right? He's got this ethnic pride. He's like, "Surely Syria is better than Israel, right?" So he's got that as well. Anything else? What else do you notice, or any kind of judgment language that you see here, or any other emotions? Yes, right. He had this very clear expectation. He says, "I expected him to wave his hand." Right. He had this preconceived notion of how the treatment would go, and that's not what happened. So it's it's a bit unsettling. Do you see the feeling behind that? He is unsettled because underneath all of this is fear. Because remember, this is a sick man. Leprosy in that time meant that you're going to die. It meant that you would be separated from all society and you would die alone. Okay, and so it's it's not something you know where you're surrounded by loved ones and you're able to get through it. And so he's afraid. This is a man who's afraid. This is a man who's traveled a long distance on the base on the word of a servant girl, because he's he's clutching at hope because he's so afraid that he's going to die. And here he comes with, okay, well this is gonna this is what's gonna happen. This is what's gonna happen. And it doesn't happen that way. And he's angry, but it's because he's so afraid. That he hasn't found the cure. He's afraid that he's come to this person, but this person doesn't have the answers. He's afraid that he's he's made a、uh, wasted trip, right? And so, you see that he's actually yes, his pride is wounded, his ego's wounded, his his prejudice and all those things are coming out、um, in the form of anger. But thankfully for Naaman, okay, he turns around in a rage and he's about to head back. But thankfully, thankfully for Naaman. He is surrounded by wiser people. It says his officers tried to reason with him and said, "Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, 'Go and wash and be cured.'" So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times, as the man of God instructed him, and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. The Bible doesn't give us all the details in between the lines, but you can imagine that when the officer says, "Hey, wait a second. Put aside what you thought should have happened, and just look at the reality," because the reality is, did the prophet reject Naaman? No. The reality is, the prophet gave him a treatment plan. The prophet gave him a command. The prophet gave him something. That he, if he follows through on the pro- the prophet promises, you will be healed. That was the reality. And so Naaman was wise enough to listen to the other perspective, to look at the facts, and he followed through, and he was healed. And so, if we want to tame our temper, first we identify the root of our anger. Secondly, we look at the reality stripped from our beliefs. 
But then thirdly, we ask the question, what new perspectives are possible? We can gather information and listen to wise friends, mentors, and counselors who can help us achieve a paradigm shift. You know, gathering more information. So, for example, um, I learned that through that about child brain development. You know, I, I knew that their brains are not fully developed, but once I did more research and learned more about how it actually works, it helped me understand Micah a lot better. So, I learned that until the age of five, the frontal cortex of children are not very well developed at all. And the frontal cortex is where good decisions are made. And so they have trouble remembering things, especially when they're tired or hungry. So remember, stress hormones flood your brain and kill them. So kids also get stressed. And so if they're stressed, and if I'm yelling at him, he gets stressed. And that actually makes him behave uh, worse because he's not able to remember the things that he's supposed to. And apparently, between the ages of five to six years old, DHEA hormones cause the brain to develop the ability to control impulses, to reason, to focus, and plan for the future. So I'm like, yes, Micah's turning five in, in uh, this week, so we're, we're, we're almost there. Um, but it helped me understand, okay, physically, he's it is impossible for him to do physically the things that I expect him to do. You know, and it's so interesting because Joshua is my second. He's my baby. And so I don't expect Joshua to be where Micah is. But and I give Joshua so much more leeway. Like it's like, ah, and Micah and then ah to Joshua, which is totally not fair. I'm sorry, all the firstborns out there. Um, and so I'm realizing I don't get I, I hardly ever get angry with Joshua, like hardly ever. Right. He gets all my cuddles and hugs. And so why am I so harsh on Micah, right? And it's because somehow I expect Micah to be like 15. <laughs> I expect him to be older and wiser. But the truth is he's still a child, right? He's still, he's still only four. He'll be five soon, but he's still only four. And so understanding and gathering that information really helped me. Also talking to my counselor, talking to other parents. Um, and, and I remember actually this was one of the first times I had a little bit of a paradigm shift. One time I was at James's uh, mom's house and, you know, Micah was playing and, I was, you know, whenever we're at someone's house, I'm like hypersensitive that he's going to break something or, and I remember just watching his every move like a hawk and he was just playing and he wasn't even doing anything bad. Um, and then he kind of jumped on the couch and I was like, Micah! And, and I remember James's mom, you know, who's a teacher and very wise, turned to me and said, he's not bad. He's just three. You know, he's not bad. He's just three. And I remember it was one of those moments I'm like, ah, like it's, it's, it's totally acceptable to be where he is because he's only, you know, at that time three. Um, and so it's so important for us to get another perspective because sometimes we are so focused on our own judgments and our own lens and our own beliefs that we can't see the reality for what it is, right? Just like Naaman. And so it's important for us to have wise counselors around us, wise friends, right? Friends who can see from a Christ-centered perspective, friends who have experienced it before, um, people in our lives who can give us insight and, and look at it from a different angle. And when we talk to those individuals, it's important that we're not there to vent because venting actually, it, it turns out, psychologists say when you vent, when you talk about anger, when you talk about a lot of other emotions, it makes it feel better. But when you talk about anger, it fuels the anger. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever experienced that. As you tell the story, you're like, and then she said, you know, and then, you're, and then you, as you think about it, it makes you more angry, right? And so they actually recommend that you don't talk about what made you angry, but you just kind of um, look at the facts. You have to kind of calm down first and then 
just look at the facts. So you're not telling it from a place of venting, but you're actually just laying it out um, to ask for an opinion, ask for a perspective, ask for another fuller picture. The best person to talk to, um, of course, is God. Even if you don't have wise people in your life, even if you don't have mentors or counselors to turn to, you always have God. That song that we sang in the beginning, Does Jesus Care? And the answer is yes, he does. Yes, he does. Okay? He does care. You know, all those nights when I was crying in my bed after a bad day, and I would just cry out to God. And he would just convict me. He would just convict me, convict me with two things. One, how much he loves me, right? Despite how horrible I had been that day. But secondly, how much he wanted me to love Micah. How much he wanted me to be able to show Micah what love is like, what unconditional love is like, what kindness is like. Sorry. <laughs> and, you know, that going to God is so important because no matter how wise your friends may be, no matter how um, spiritual your friends may be, no matter how, you know, um, how many PhDs your mentors might have, ultimately God is the only one who can see our hearts. God is the only one who understands truth in all its angles and ways and so you know there's that verse the lord people judge by outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart and so when we talk to god and when we pray to god and god convicts us through the bible through prayer through the holy spirit through that conscience right through that impression that god is giving you and saying hey it's gonna be okay right hey let's 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 show kindness more hey let's let's forgive that person those convictions from god are so important um because that's how we learn the root of our anger the root of our anger because sometimes it's hard for us to strip away the judgment and we it's hard for us to really understand ourselves but because god knows us so well in those moments of prayer he can convict us and show us what's actually at the bottom of all of our anger and all of our negative emotions. For example, Jonah was a prophet of God. He was someone that everyone respected because when God spoke to him, thanks Galen, just come on. <laughs> Thank you. Um, when, when God would speak to Jonah and um, say, hey, this is, this is what is going to happen. Jonah would share the message and it would happen. So Jonah had a great reputation for being this prophet of God, for being someone, you know, whose word was, was true. And so when God comes along to Jonah and says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to, to tell Nineveh that they're going to be uh, judged because of their great wickedness. And when Jonah hears this message, he says, no way, Jose, I'm not going to share that message. Gets in a boat and tries to run away from God. Long story short, he gets swallowed by a fish. He comes out and he decides, okay, God, I will go deliver this message. He goes, delivers the message. And then the entire city repents and turns around and says, God, I'm, we're so sorry for our wickedness. We want to worship you. What a success. What, this is the greatest evangelical campaign ever, right? Can you imagine? He should have been thrilled. He should have been um, elated that the whole city had been spared, that everyone had decided to worship God. But Jonah, we find out, 
is not happy at all. The change of plans, it says, greatly upset Jonah. He became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. Ah, right? Ah, I knew you were like that. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if, if what I predicted will not happen. Okay? Jonah is so angry. Okay, let's, let's, let's do our exercise. Anger is his secondary emotion. So what's going on underneath that anger? What is his primary emotion? Yes, someone said fear. Fear of? Yeah, it's fear and pride, right? That people are not going to respect my word anymore, right? I, I've lost my reputation as this prophet whose word always comes true. Um, and so he's so angry that God is slow to anger. <laughs> he's so angry that it says, I knew you were a God of unfailing love. Gosh, darn it. He says, I'm so upset with you, God, for being so merciful. Right. And because Jonah is very unreasonable, God tries to talk to him and then God's like, all right, let me try another way. So God actually uses, um, life. He uses an illustration. He arranges a leafy plant to grow over Jonah because Jonah is so angry. And he's like, oh, maybe God will still destroy it. So he decides to climb this hill where he can see Nineveh from a safe distance. And he sits there hoping that fire will come down from heaven to destroy Nineveh. And he's going to be there to watch it. So he's sitting on this hot mountaintop and he's, you know, scorching, you know, heat. So God makes this leafy plant grow over him. And the Bible says he's so happy and grateful for this plant that's giving him shade. But then God does something else. God's very cheeky sometimes. God arranges a worm that eats up the plant so that the plant withers away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Jonah's very dramatic. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And then the book of Jonah ends there. It doesn't tell us Jonah's response. But I really hope that Jonah had that paradigm shift. I really hope that in that moment, through that illustration, Jonah realized, ah, oh, here I am thinking about myself. When there's a whole city of 120,000 people and animals, because God loves animals too, who deserve as much mercy as I do. And I think that's why God chose Jonah. You see, God could have spoke to Nineveh directly himself. But why did he ask Jonah to go share this message? I think because he wanted Jonah to realize that he needed to change as much as Nineveh did. That he needed to repent as much as Nineveh did. That he needed to have that paradigm shift as much as Nineveh did. Are you angry about something or someone today?
Perhaps it's a moment God is convicting you of your need for compassion and change. The truth is, hurt people hurt people. And broken people break people. Broken hearts break hearts, right? That's, it's something that we have to remember. And the only way to break that cycle is to overcome evil with good, to overcome hatred with love, to overcome injustice with compassion. I certainly realized through my, you know, year-ish of experiencing all this anger and, and everything that followed with it, that not only did I have so many wrong beliefs in my head about parenting, but also about myself. I realized that I had allowed so much, much, such mu so much of my worth to be determined by my achievements and my successes and my associations rather than just who I was in God. Because I felt like, am I the only one who can't do this right, right? And, and, and it made me feel you know, really ashamed and really uh, embarrassed and all, all these things because I realized that my self-worth had been attached so much to how well I did things or how, how great everything was going. Through the prayer and prompting of the Holy Spirit, I realized that God wanted me to, be, to learn to be more compassionate and kind and patient and empathetic and to understand my children better. Like I said in the beginning, I'm still learning this. You might still hear me yelling and echoing down the hallway of the church. But I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And it's gotten so much better. It's gotten so much better. And God is showing me day by day that if I, make, if I have a bad day and I make a mistake, it's not the end of the world. right? That God forgives me and he's going to empower me to do better. And that as long as I'm open to God and the Holy Spirit changing me and prompting me, that change can happen. Because the Holy Spirit, you know, the fruits of anger is the unrighteousness. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It says, there is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Going back to Cain, if he had just realized that he had jealousy against Abel before he went to offer that offering, or even after when God said to him, hey, I don't accept your offering because you need to, there's sin crouching at your heart. If Cain had taken that moment to realize, oh yeah, I, I am jealous of Abel, and had gone to Abel and had talked out and confessed and, and asked for help and, and prayed to God, not only would God have accepted him, but he and Abel would have a great relationship. And who knows what the history would have been like. And instead, Cain let that, that feeling of jealousy grow into, into that anger, into that rage, into that murderous um, intent. And so I want to challenge all of us today that when that initial feeling, whether it's sadness or hurt or rejection or fear, jealousy, whatever it is, creeps into our heart to right then and there ask God, hey, where did this come from? And what is the reality? And how can I make things right? And Father God, will you help me to see things from your perspective? And will you help me to be more like you? There's a quote that someone um, put that I really like. It says, if I were like 
ask yourself, if I were like Jesus, if I were at my very best, my kindest, my wisest, my most courageous and confident and compassionate, how would I make sense of this situation? What would I understand? What would Jesus want me to feel and think and do? And then act as if you are from acting from that place of that Christ-like self. Because that's what Jesus calls us to do. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor even deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. And I want you to look at who wrote this. Okay, When we look at Bible study methods uh, next Saturday afternoon, we're going to talk about how important it is to look at the author. Who wrote this passage? Peter. Do you remember Peter? Peter was a disciple of Jesus who had a fiery temper. He was an angry man. Okay, He was angry at the Roman soldiers because they were exploiting the Jewish people. He was angry at the Jewish leaders because they were politically maneuvering everybody. He was angry with the fellow disciples because they you know, wanted to be better than him. He was angry when Jesus was arrested and he cut off a soldier's ear. He was angry when he followed Jesus to the court and then secretly was kind of hoping to, to, to fit in with the crowd. And when one of the people are like, hey, aren't you a follower of Jesus? And he's like, no, I'm not. And when they kept asking, it says he got angry and started cursing and saying, no, I, I don't know the man. Okay? Peter was an angry man. But he's able to say this. He's able to say, we're called to do good. We're called to suffer. We're called to change. You know why? Because he hit rock bottom, but God still forgave him. He denied Jesus three times. But when Jesus died, or even before Jesus died, you know, Peter and Jesus were able to at least have looks and glances at each other, and there was only love and forgiveness in Jesus' eyes. And Peter was there when Jesus died on the cross. And Peter was there when he heard that Jesus resurrected. And Peter was there when Jesus came to him and said, Peter, do you love me? And restored Peter and actually made Peter one of the leaders of the Christian church. And because Peter had experienced forgiveness and mercy from God himself, he was able to let go of his anger. He was able to learn to forgive and love others. And he became someone who, at the end of his life, was crucified upside down, but wasn't angry, wasn't cursing at the people who were nailing him. He was able to forgive and love them the same way that Christ did. The Bible says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So if you have any root of anger in your heart today, whether it's caused by jealousy or, or fear or pride or bitterness against someone who has hurt you, whatever it may be, I pray that our prayer would be, I want to be like Jesus. I want to experience that forgiveness from Jesus. And as I embrace his mercy, I pray that I can extend that mercy to others and therefore experience freedom for myself. 
I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing our closing song. It's a very simple song. It's an actually American spiritual. So it's a song that African-American slaves in America uh, wrote while they were slaves. And, you know, you can imagine that the slaves in, Af- in America had so much to be angry about. Their, their lives had been robbed from them. They're made to do uh, hard manual labor. They're treated like worse than animals, right? All their, all their um, freedom has been taken away. And yet they were able to find peace and love and, and security in God. And so I love the American spirituals, and this is one of my favorites. Um, and it's just, you might not know it, but it's a per- very simple tune. So as we sing along, I pray that this would be the prayer of your heart. <laughs>